The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories shared on this podcast may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened to myself, my guests, if they even happened at all. Many of the details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Idea. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, his co-hosts, and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 49 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 17th of July, 2020, from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. Let me start off the show today by saying thank you to Captain Dave Letourneau for joining me on episode 48, Airport Bums and Bondaranis. What an amazing journey he's had. And I just want to say thank you to him for sharing a slice of his journey with us. On today's show, I have the honor in speaking with a few aviators that have had a huge international footprint with their journeys in aviation. They both started their careers in Iceland, came to America to build time in Cessnas and Pipers at a little flight school where we first met in the year 2005. They have since built upon an impressive resume of flying positions in countries such as Austria, Sweden, and Iceland where they currently fly for a company that we're going to call Legacy Iceland. To help me have this much-anticipated conversation is one of my co-hosts here at Squawk Ident. He is a professional CFI, I, and MEI flight instructor, a former Embraer 145 airline pilot, a Western Grape bird strike survivor, and a King Air instructor as well. He is a corporate pilot and... He's joining us from his fortress of isolation from somewhere in San Diego, California. Please help me in welcoming back to the show, Captain Roger. Captain, how are you? Oh, I'm hanging in there. You know, just just like everybody else, I think these are definitely some trying times, and I think we're all doing the best we can in the midst of it. Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, I mentioned in the last show that uh, we've got some pretty stressful situations going on around the world with aviators, um, regardless of what kind of operation they're in, um, there's going to be potentially a lot of unemployed pilots on the street. Myself potentially is included in that. And we may discuss a little bit about that a little later in the show. But today, we are very privileged in having a few aviators from Iceland talk to us about their journeys. We met a while back when we were all flying at an operation in Chandler, Arizona, back in 2005. We're going to find out how they both got started in aviation, what led them to the United States to build time and the reasons behind it, the process that it took to go through all the conversion of the private pilot license, and how we met 
We're also going to speak about what they did in their journeys back in Iceland and around the world to build time, gain positions from airlines, and what they're doing today. We're also going to dive into what the future holds amongst this global pandemic. Please help me in welcoming to the show, Sibi and Runar. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, you know, we had some pretty good times, uh, building time, uh, getting checked out in, you know, getting your BFR to get your license converted over in Chandler, Arizona back in the day. Um, and you went through a process that allowed you to come to the United States to build time and to convert your Icelandic licenses into uh, an American private pilot license. And we're going to dive into that a little bit later in the show. But before we get into that, I want to take this opportunity and kind of give our listeners a little bit of an introduction. Now, I'm not in any way <laughs> qualified to pronounce any Icelandic names. So I really would like, you know, we, we've, you've given us, you know, your, your, basically your nicknames uh, that we've been calling you now for 15 years. Uh, but please, Sibi, let's start with you. Give me the perfect pronunciation. My full name is uh, Sigurd Björn Ragnarsson. And Runar, how do you say your name in Icelandic? My name is uh, Runar Inki Ausgetsson. Beautiful. Love it. <laughs> I'm not even going to try. So, you know, we talked a little bit about how we first met. But let's, before we get into that, let's dive into how each of you got started in aviation. What initially sparked this journey. Runar, let's start with you. What made you decide that you wanted to fly airplanes for a living? Well, I've just always been fascinated about airplanes. I just remember as a, you know, this cliche story about uh, being a kid, seeing an airplane. And I remember particularly um, a brochure of a Stokada airplane that my father was looking at. And I don't know, it's just somewhere from there. I've just been very fascinated about flying airplanes. and. Until day from what 19 years from my first uh, single engine flight, I'm, I'm still very enjoying it. Yeah. How old were you when you took your first flight? I was uh, 21. Yeah, 21 years old. So you were already, were you in uh, was it college over there? Or so how did, how's it work with the uh, schooling? Uh, I just decided to take a private pilot license and um, I just signed up for a private pilot license uh, course. Uh, yeah, I sort of found an uh, instructor who was wants to take me on as a, as a student. And uh, yeah, it took, took a while until I went to the commercial part. But uh, yeah, that's sort of how I started. Yeah. And... and so was is it very expensive there in Iceland to kind of go up for a discovery flight and start working on your private rating, or, or how is it? Is it a lot like it is here in the U.S.? Not really sure how it is in the U.S., but yeah, it might be a, a little bit more expensive. But uh, yeah, since since well, it was two thousand and one. Uh, it's been I think much more expensive now than it was back then. Mm -hmm. Uh, you just sort of, yeah, paid for the course, went for this, uh, uh, ground courses, and then you were doing the flying alongside it. How many ratings did you have before you decided to come to the U S to build time? 
I basically, yeah, I did did my um, what's it called the ATPL course in Oxford. Oh, you already had the, the uh, license then, uh, schooling for that. I already finished. I remember I finished the ground school in Oxford Aviation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I basically just had my private license, but I did the the uh, ground course, and then I came to uh, US to build hours, and and after that I actually started and did my uh, commercial pilot license in multi-engine rating with uh, Oxford in uh, Scottsdale. Oh, okay. So you you were doing some uh, more than just building time at Tailwind. You were you were taking some lessons and some uh, courses there in the Arizona area. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I was I was finishing my commercial pilot license and uh, the multi-engine rating mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And how long were you in Arizona? Because I, I don't know if uh, I ever realized that you were doing the, the CPL stuff over there. Uh, I was total uh, 10 weeks. Wow, that's a short period of time you you were uh, cramming in the uh, the ratings there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Sibi, uh, what about yourself? What got you started in in aviation? Well, uh, my father uh, was a baker. He's retired now, but he was a baker. And he run was uh, running a, a bakery in my hometown. And for the first five, six years, I was always going to be a baker, as my, like, just like my father. But uh, then he took me to the airfield because uh, on our national holiday when we're celebrating, celebrating our uh, independence, um, he went, he took me down to the airfield, local airfield in our hometown and they were uh, giving, you know, free sightseeing flights, like 20 minutes or something. And it was on a, I think, I, I think it was a super cup that were flying. And I just remember when I strapped in the front seat, the uh, pilot in the back, and you know he was letting me control a little bit, you know, steer the aircraft. And at that moment, it was all I wanted to do. Um, I just got very fascinated fascinated with aviation. And um, when I took uh, vacation with my parents to Europe and stuff like that, the most exciting part was the flight there and flight back. And how old were you when you were on that uh, Cub uh, experience? I think it was like, I think it was six years old or something. Yeah. So very young. Yeah. 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 And yeah, it's just, it just grew from there. I was, uh, it was some tax show that was uh, uh, going on in Reykjavik at that time, maybe two, three years later or something. Mm -hmm. And my father just recently purchased a PC, a computer for the, uh, for the home. So it's very primitive green screen and, you know, the big floppy disks and all oh, that yeah. stuff. And it was a flight simulator with uh, Chuck Yeager, I think it was. I was always, you know, practicing on takeoff and always messed up the landing. But on the, during that tax show, they had uh, the simulator for the flight school. Ah. And they just moved. It was very primitive at that time, but they moved it to this show. And we're offering people to come and try to fly the airplane. And there was an instructor there sitting by their people's side and, you know, telling them what to do and what not to do. <laughs> so, uh, and I really wanted to try, but I couldn't get because I was just a kid. Uh, but I stood there listening to them 
listen to the instructor, what everything he said about taking off and landing and stuff like that. So after the, after that, uh, we went home. I turned on the computer and started the simulator, and that was the first time I got I managed to land the aircraft. Wow! <laughs> Just by uh, listening to um, the instructions yeah. before, and yeah. Ever since, just been fascinated, and it's such a privilege even today to be working at you know something that you really enjoy. Yeah, someone once told me if you find a passion, you'll never have to work a day in your life, and I I knew that, I heard that, I've read that, exactly, but I didn't really understand it until I think my first job where I was actually getting paid to show up every day and fly an airplane, even as an instructor, and, and it just that that's something that you can't really describe to people. And, uh, you know, it sounds like you felt that very early on and, and it's a wonderful thing to be able to express. So thank you for saying that. Um, what did you continue to do after, you know, you had this video game that you were, you know, playing this flight simulator. How did you get that transition into flight training? Uh, I couldn't really wait to start. So, um, I actually took my first lesson. I think I was 13 years old. Oh, wow. And I just gathered all the money I could just for one lesson, you know, one lesson at a time. And um, then the instructor came to me and said, you know, you, you're better off just waiting until you're old enough, you know, when you're, you've done your education and yeah. when you're ready. So that's what I did. I didn't fly again until it was like, I think 21 as well. Oh, wow. But uh, that's all I wanted wanted to do. So yeah. And did you also uh, you know work on ratings in Iceland before you came to America and to build time? Yeah, I already had my I already had my commercial pilot license when I came. Uh, all I needed was the hours because uh, at that time uh, our company was hiring people that had 500 hour total time and 100 hours on a twin aircraft so that was you know more or less the criteria that were that they had and so my my mission there was basically getting 500 hours total and 100 on the twin and so so you guys there there was a group of you guys that had come over to to arizona what was it that well there's a couple questions that really i'm curious about and first of all what was it about arizona or how did you guys choose phoenix and tailwind and then also as a uh maybe this is just me but to to go through that whole process of coming to a completely different country and 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 coming over here for for even just a few months but but what was that like to be able to to try and realize your dream i'll i'll at least tell you my uh view on this so i'll start just uh my you know the people that are not on the audio, you can see the weather. It's quite windy. It's cloudy. It's miserable outside right now. <laughs> right. And that's a big factor. And it's factor July. Right yeah, it's July. It's midsummer. Yeah. I will uh, note it's much greener where very you are beautiful. at than, than Arizona, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we think, we think it's beautiful. <laughs> go, go ahead. But, but yeah, that's, that's... You have a city view main... over here. Oh, yeah, there you there go. go. But that's one of the the major factors that that plays in uh, the decision of going to Arizona, where you have like 
what, 360 days of sun or something like that? Yeah. Arizona and Florida Close has enough. traditionally been the busiest flight training states in the United States simply because of the weather and the opportunity to not have cancellations. Florida now has kind of slowed down a little bit because they do get a little bit more extreme weather and thunderstorm activity that that creates delays in training. But Arizona, it's very rare. I mean, you get your occasional uh, monsoon season and your occasional dust storm or haboob that comes through. Um, and rarely, maybe four or five times a year, you have temperatures that go beyond the limitation of the aircraft. Uh, when we're talking about GA airplanes, we're talking about, okay, check the chart, make sure the density altitude and the performance is there for a takeoff at your uh departure and destination, uh, because unless you plan on getting stuck there, like some people used to do in Sedona, mm. um, but uh, you have to check the density altitude. And if the temperature is even one degree above the chart's limit, you're done because then you're a test pilot. And those were the only times really in Phoenix, at least, or in the Arizona area where uh, flying uh, was an issue uh, due to weather. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Arizona is absolutely the busiest uh, training environment or at least the state uh that has the most training flight training for ga so i could completely understand but, then, but the uh, other major factor for me at least was uh, that actually tom t2 uh, ran the uh ran tailwind he uh he made a trip up to iceland just to uh, you know introduce the the, the school the flight school mm. And the opportun uh, opportunities that you had flying around there, he came there with charts, pictures, you know, maps, stuff like that, just to show people where you were located, where you can go, what to do. The prices were appealing. And uh, so that kind of sealed the deal for me, at least. Yeah. Because we, we never got any uh, anybody from any flight school or any, you know, operator, or anyone who had any GAA aircraft that would come physically to Iceland just to talk to you, just to, you know, make some introduction. Sell you on the, on, on the location. And what was yeah. that like to, to, to be faced with that decision to leave your home country and come to, had you ever been to America before? Nope. That was my mm, first time. Nope. And, and, I mean, for either one of you, had you, neither one of you had been to America and here you are, some guy shows up and says, Hey, we want you to come fly an airplane in a foreign country that you've never been. I mean, what, what was that like? Yeah, I think it's also quite common for uh, pilots here that they, they want to build hours. It was quite common to go to the States and, and get the hours, especially uh, it was cheaper. Yeah, you could fly a lot more. And uh, at this time, in what was it, 2005? Uh, the exchange ratio between the Icelandic krona and the, the American dollar was really, really good for us. So it's actually a no-brainer to go. And also, you just uh, get an excellent uh, opportunity to fly in this sort of yeah big country with a lot of uh, lot of private pilots flying around and 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 yeah, radio communication. It's just so many aspects that was um, very beneficial. Yeah. Yeah, it is a lot different here in the in the states than in the in Europe. I know a lot of people have talked about that, and obviously, America does have a, have people coming from all over the world for flight training. Just to leave your own your home country and and go somewhere you've never been before must have been a daunting thought. Well, it, it helped a lot because uh, there were two like 
pioneers that were there before us that kind of recommended this place. That was uh, Palle and Kumi. And Kumi is a good friend of mine. And uh, he came, you know, just told because uh, we were at the same time at Oxford as well. And mind you, we had already been away from home, you know, for months doing our theoretical training for the commercial right. license. So, you know, leaving somewhere else for do, you know, for some flying, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so because we knew two other guys that had already been there uh, and this guy came all the way over and, you know, was going, you know, telling us about uh, everything there. Uh, there was no, never a doubt, you know, this guy might be uh, ripping us off or anything, you know. Yeah. Because there were already two of us already been there. And yeah. Yeah. And Runar. And, and as for me, uh, I mean, I already did the theoretical part in Oxford in the UK. And this was an option. You go to the uh, States in into Scottsdale and, and do your uh, CPL license and multi-engine rating, or you could do it in the UK. And, and yeah, going uh, to Arizona and yeah, found out the school was there, doing some hour building and continue doing my rating. That uh, I was kind of yeah, win-win for me. And let's talk about that for a moment. So, you know, obviously you have the Icelandic equivalent of all your ratings, and this flight school is offering to bring you over and you know find uh, housing for you to stay in while you're there building time, but that doesn't get you past the hurdle of requiring an FAA type license. What can you walk me through that process? What is that like or what needs to be done? Uh, <clears throat> if I recall, we obviously had to have our Icelandic license uh, current and our SCP rating current. And then I think we just filled out uh, online form and we had to, uh, do a lot of stuff. And of course, because I was coming as a sort of student to the States, I had to have a, have a visa mm -hmm. because I was going there for uh, Oxford. Um, so, yeah, then we just had to go to this FAA office and with all our documents. I mean, yeah, I don't know. If you think back, it wasn't such a hassle, but. Yeah, and the, uh, the world's all Okay. Yeah. It looks, it, when thinking about it, it was, wasn't that bad at all, actually. You just had to fill online form and go there for some interview, I think. Yeah, the flight standards out uh, some... district office or the FISDO. Yeah. 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 Some interview and, yeah, it was it. Then we got a small piece of paper that was our temporary license, which I still have, by the way, somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have to do a, an FAA medical or was your Icelandic medical sufficient? It was sufficient. Oh, yeah. Perfect. So basically our our FAA license is uh, an extension of our Icelandic li license. So if we would, um, let's say, not have the SCP, single engine piston rating in the license, we are unable to fly single engine pistons in the US. Okay. So... Yeah, and as for me, I mean, I still have my FAA license, and uh, but that's based on uh, my PPL Icelandic license, which I don't have. So I have a CPL license, so I probably would have have to uh, do that again to get a validation on my CPL mm. license. So that's when we met. 
Uh, you came to Arizona to Tailwind Flight Center, where I was uh, employed along with Roger there. And uh, part of the deal was before you can go, you needed to validate that American conversion temporary certificate. And the way you did that is you had to uh, basically perform in a, a biannual flight review or a BFR. And so you perform the BFR with an instructor from the flight school. You'd go out and we'd go and do some pattern work, uh, see if you could go th through some standard uh, emergency procedures and standard maneuvers and then come back and do some some landings. And, and that was it. Your BFR was complete. And um, the other stipulation that our flight school had, I don't think it was an FAA mandate, but it was I think it was a, a flight school mandate because of the insurance uh, that needed to be uh had for the for the school was you couldn't go into a class Bravo airspace uh, without an instructor on board to help with communications with to help with charts and navigation and whatnot um, and you had to have a checkout before you went through any VFR corridor which being in the Phoenix area anyone that's familiar uh, can pull up a sectional and see that there are plenty of airports I think what 12 or 13 airports underneath the class Bravo shelf and Though those are not inside Class Bravo, they're under Class Bravo. So, so that's how we kind of all, you know, met, and it was very exciting for me to meet someone that was coming to this country that was making an an ultimate courageous adventure to come to a country where, you know, the language you guys were all fluent in English, but there was some language barriers there and. You know, we were sometimes helping you work in the radios, especially when we we're doing some long cross countries together. But it was just a fun experience to hear about your culture, to hear about some of the ways, you know, you all met. And, you know, we really had a wonderful time. It was one of the highlights of my time at, at Tailwind Flight Center. Um, Roger, did you kind of experience the same aspect of flying around with Vikings in the cockpit? Well, I had a slightly different, a little bit, a, a little bit of a different experience because I was at the very tail end of most of you guys. I think that most of you guys had come through in 2005 because the majority of um, of you guys had gone through just before I got there. I, I actually joined it in January of '06, um, and so I didn't, I didn't do any of the initial checkouts. I didn't have the opportunity to meet some of you guys as well as as Tony did. I, I I mostly remember going. I flew to Vegas with with Olver, Um and that was uh, I don't remember. Somebody went with Vince. It was Vince, and I don't know who Vince flew with. But that that in itself is the something we want to go to the New York, New York. We want to ride the roller coaster, and this is something that you know. Okay, well, it's a roller coaster, and it's 110 degrees outside. But sure, we can choose. We can do this. And then, you know, to be able to sit in an airplane for, you know, by the time you fly out to Vegas and fly back, that's a good, you know, five hours or yeah. so. Um, and kind of like my earlier question, you know, to, to listen to somebody who has left, I mean, you left everything, your, your home countries, obviously it's a little bit different. You guys had been into the UK and then you're going to America, but to have that talk to somebody with those kinds of experience, I think is, is kind of cool. And my hat's off to you guys who, um, Quite frankly, you guys had to jump through a whole lot more hoops than than me, you know, myself or Tony did where we, you know, okay, well, we're here in the States and, you know, where we're, wherever we're at, we go down to the airport and then it's all kind of, 
relatively seamless for us, whereas you guys have to, you know, start in one place and go to another country and then you go to another country, but to go back home. And then, you know, you guys have gotten several different jobs again in country after country after country, which I think is, um, is cool. And again, my hat's off to you guys for, for going through all that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's a, there, there are many different roads actually to get the license from here. Um, I think basically, uh, I can think of at least two, uh, major reasons why you do the way you did, uh, when me and Runa were there is, uh, the, the flight hour was quite expensive in Iceland at that time. And as we mentioned before, the weather is quite miserable. So the amount of work you need to do and all the flight hours you need to build and all the lessons you need to take takes much longer uh, if you were going to do it all here in Iceland. And uh, as for the theoretical part at that time, uh, this was just when the J8 uh, was taking over from, you know, IKO or what? Mm-hmm. What was it? The um, I don't know what you had before. The uh, yeah. just the civil aviation in Iceland had had their own sort of thing going mm-hmm. on, but then the then came the uh, JAA exams and everybody was failing at their exams, the written exams, or more or less. It was quite difficult at that time, so that's one of the main reasons I went to the UK, for example. Uh, to Oxford to do the uh, theoretical training there, but I came back to Iceland to do the um, the uh, practical training, uh, and it it takes a while. It uh, um, I imagine it would not take me twelve weeks, just like you know, as Runa mentioned, or ten weeks. I can't remember. Yeah, I was ten yeah. weeks in total doing the hour building. I think it was like five or six weeks in in uh, Scottsdale. So oh, there you go. It's more like four months at least doing wow. you know all the work. And do you have the fee for departure there? Uh, is that something that is calculated in your flight training expenses in Iceland, or is that not a factor? I don't think that's no. a factor for uh, not for uh, uh, general aviation I or. See. Yeah, because I remember that was a hot topic at least, you know, 15, 20 years ago was many countries you had a fee for departure. You paid every time that aircraft landed at an airport, they'd send the bill to the owner. Mm -hmm. And so that was part Mm -hmm. of the training expenses. You're not only paying for your aircraft, fuel and instructor, you're now also, you know, calculated in there is this landing fee. Um, and mm-hmm. a lot of countries would come to the U.S. to a flight school because the U.S. doesn't have landing fees for general aviation unless you go into one of the particular major airports in the country where it's all jet traffic and they just don't have time to, to deal with the general aviation aircraft. Uh, O'Hare, Philadelphia, you know, big, big Atlanta, big airports, um, they have landing fees. Uh, JFK, mm-hmm. so the only you're not going to see a Cessna 172 amongst triple sevens in JFK. It's just, I mean, if you see that, <laughs> they paid a lot of money to land there because they have a landing fee. <laughs> so it's or something went wrong. Or something, yeah, very <laughs> wrong. <laughs> yeah, because if you can afford that landing fee, yeah. you can afford a jet. I mean, right? <laughs> so yeah, exactly. No, that's not an issue here because uh, you can basically land anywhere on a on a general aviation aircraft. Mm. Uh, as long as it 
I think it's as as long as it's private. I see. You you can land in Keploik, the international airport. You know, it was always fun to do uh, circuits. Yeah. When the when the seven fives were coming in from Europe, just mixing it in. Yeah. But yeah. Caution, late turbulence. Yeah, pretty much. So you guys spent quite some time here in the U.S. building time, and eventually you went back to Iceland. Um, what was that transition like? Now, you spent some time here in the U.S. We did some really cool trips all together, checking out Vegas and, and going around the, the Southwest, really. Uh, and then when you went back to Iceland, was it right back into the cockpit over there to continue your training, or how did that progression work? Well, for me, I uh, started to do my instrument rating when I came back. Uh, and yeah, doing some hour building alongside it as, as much as you could. Uh, and then eventually I came, I came back to Tailwinds a year later in 2006. And then I completed the full 500 hour Sid was talking, talking about to that was the basic requirement for for um, airlines back in Iceland to have 500 hours total. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was pretty much the story for me. And when you had your 500 hours, did you get hired right away, Runar? <clears throat> no, I ended up uh, on a self-sponsored Airbus 300 course. And I got a job uh, with an Icelandic company, which is uh, mainly... HDMI operator. So that was in 2007. Mm-hmm. So I actually, yeah, started flying commercially in the uh, end of 2007. Okay. And was it a pretty busy schedule there? Are you getting a lot of hours in or was it not so much? Uh, <clears throat> at first it was uh, okay. Uh, I mean, the whole uh, 2008 was, was uh, doing okay. Then obviously end of 2008, the recession comes in and and uh, in mid-year of 2009, I actually left that company and joined uh, a pretty big company in the Middle East. Ah, and can you talk about that? Or so, <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, uh, because I had the Airbus 300 rating, I was able to join the that company with only 500 hours on the Airbus and 1,000 hours total. So uh, and I ended up being there for just over six years before I moved back home to join our company here. Yeah, was it tough being away from home? Well, I mean, when I was with the ACMI company, I uh, actually was sort of commuting. Mm-hmm. So I was doing six weeks on and two weeks off. Uh, I was pretty tough with the family. Uh, when I joined uh, in the Middle East, uh, my family actually moved with me. Oh, cool. So that was more of a fam- family life, and we just based there and working from there. So that was also actually quite good. Yeah. Any exciting experiences uh, being in the Middle East with your family that you'd care to share with us? <laughs> well, obviously, I mean, it's uh, the culture is a lot different, uh, but us with many of the countries, it's a lot of expats working there and living there. So you sort of ended up in the expert community and uh, and actually we were sort of talking about that earlier this evening. So it was quite funny. And uh, I mean, you just meet up people from anywhere and, you know, you gather for some dinner parties and 
go to the desert or the beach and I don't know, it was, it was quite enjoyable actually. And I mean, some stuff, they, they maybe bother you a bit, but yeah, they pay you good money. Yeah. Yeah. And so from there, when you came back to, to Reykjavik, what transition did you have? Uh, I don't know. It was just good to be home, I guess, uh, because for the um, last three years, I was, uh, I was uh, three years I was in the Middle East. Um, actually, my wife and daughter they had moved home, and uh, we we had a son uh, as well. So then I was sort of uh, commuting back and forth for almost three years. So coming home was just kind of amazing, and and uh, having a job with this uh, company was was. Uh, I don't know. I think it's uh, when you when you're from Iceland, live in Iceland. I think this is the best best job. Yeah. And Sibi, how about yourself? What transition did you have going back to Iceland after leaving Arizona? Well, it uh, wasn't. Well, I didn't jump back in the cockpit. That's for sure. Because um, I came home, and uh, I think we finished in October or November, two thousand five. And I came back uh, to Tailwind in 2006 in April, I think it was, just to finish off the little hours that I uh, I had left. And I started just working for a security company for, uh, geez, I think, probably well, three years or something like that before I got offered... My first uh, aviation-related job, uh, a friend of mine, Ole, he was working at uh, Bluebird, uh, a company here in Iceland, uh, cargo, you know, flying cargo mm-hmm. around. And he was working in, in uh, operations, and he managed to, um, well, he told me about a, a position there was going to be available. So I applied, got the job, went through the training. And uh, probably two weeks into the, you know, unsupervised shifts, I got a call from uh, a small operator in Iceland offering me a job as a pilot. So I said goodbye to Bluebird at that point Mm -hmm. and was uh, flying between Westman Islands in the southern part of Iceland to the mainland. It was like six minutes flights from the island to the mainland. And then back. <laughs> and yeah, it was... What uh, aircraft was it? We flew uh, an Islander, Red Norman Islander. Mm. It's a monster. Yeah? <laughs> it, doesn't have, it doesn't have an airspeed indicator. It has a calendar. It would pull off the... It was so slow. <laughs> uh, but it was really noisy. And, and, but it was great fun. And then uh, we flew in uh, uh, Partenavia. Oh. Uh, it was... A little faster, okay. and um, uh, yeah, I was there for that whole summer. Uh, gets all mixed up now because I think I went back to uh, Bluebird actually working in uh, crewing, uh, helping uh, or assistant there. Okay, went back to the islands flying, and then I got a job offer in uh, Austria, flying uh, a Premier, and <laughs> uh, that was quite fun. Yeah. And how was it working in Austria? Were you commuting also? Yeah. Uh, well, originally we were supposed to be based in Odessa in Ukraine, mm. 
and this is 2008. And then uh, we have, well, we did all the training in, in the US and um, we went to Odessa to do the landings just to fulfill the, the type rating. And once we completed that, uh, I, I don't exactly know what happened, but somehow the aircraft ended back in Austria and didn't fly for like six months or something like that. Uh, but then it started again in operation and we were supposed to have our base in uh, Austria and Vienna. And I was there for like, I don't know, a month maybe. And then, and then the aircraft was moved down to Milan ah. for the whole summer. Not much flying though. Yeah. It was uh, just standbys. And, uh, but it was great fun anyway. Always fun when you got to fly somewhere. Yeah. So we have a, we have a, a company name, uh, in common. Now the regional airline I used to work for, I affectionately call Sandpiper regional because I try to, you know, even though I don't work there anymore, they're wholly owned to my current employer, which we call legacy airlines here in the U S but, uh, you used to fly for a company named eagle air what can you tell me about that yeah that's well that's very fun we uh i used to fly uh uh jet stream 31 and 32 uh started there 2011 mm-hmm. and it's great fun you just just uh domestic flying occasional uh, ambulance flight from Reykjavik to uh, sweden to gothenburg mm-hmm. and uh yeah it's great experience it's uh Flying in Icelandic winter weather, <laughs> always such fun. Yeah, I <laughs> I envy you for that because that's not something I think I could stomach, that cold walk around. <laughs> yeah. But uh, from that, I actually, first after the first summer, we got uh, furloughed or laid off, whatever you want to call it, because of uh, seasonal uh, contraction or and uh, got offered a job in Sweden flying the same type of aircraft. Oh, good. That winter. So there it got pretty cold, like minus 32 centigrade or something like that. And uh, But it was great fun as well. It's, it was, uh, yeah. So at this time, uh, both you and Runer were really having enough hours to be competitive to start to apply for your current employer, which we're going to call a Legacy Iceland. Um, so you applied was that process very difficult how did that work uh for me uh i actually applied 2006 but then having only 500 hours there was a lot of competition because a lot of people have finished 500 hours and so yeah it was uh, very different than when we eventually joined in 2016 uh, of course, there's an interview process and uh, some exams and simulators. And I didn't do quite well back in 2006, so I didn't get in then. But uh, obviously, being uh, uh, yeah in the Middle East, I was joining with, uh, I mean, I was flying Airbus 300. I was flying uh, 777 all over the world. So I think I was a very good candidate when I applied with Iceland. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was basically the same. Uh, you could yeah, come in and do some uh, written exams and psychological tests. 
and then we had an interview and some uh, simulator uh, sort of test as well. And uh, yeah, it gave us a call a few weeks later. Yeah, and were you guys in the same class? So uh, yeah, we're we're both hired, uh, employed on, uh, in 2016, but, but we didn't do started our... started uh, months before me. I, I was joining the last sort of training course. Ah, okay. Yeah. And what aircraft were you guys hired into initially? Seven Boeing seven five. Seven five seven. Both of you guys started in the seven fifty seven. That was yeah. the only aircraft that uh, the Legacy uh, was uh, operating. Legacy Iceland was operating only seven fives. And did you guys help each other out with the training process, with the yeah. studying? Well, I had to help Runa a lot. Yeah, I mean, he didn't quite know. <laughs> Been flying yeah. only triple sevens and stuff like that. <laughs> this airplane with only one aisle in the back. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I had a show the little around. one, yeah, the little jet. <laughs> <laughs> the little, little, little twin. The little twin. Yeah. So you've been there, what, four years now. Has it been a wonderful experience for you, very positive, or, or have you had your share of difficulties? Uh, it's, well, mm. overall, it's positive for me, at least. Um, yeah. It's always difficult because uh, it had been, you know, you're always laid off during uh, late summer. Uh, just for the winter months, and then you have to hop back in in uh, early or late spring. Oh, really? And yeah, it's been like that for many years actually. But uh, we got what two letters from Legacy Islands? Yeah. So it's is that because yeah. of the climate and the and the seasons up there that they lay off uh, people every year to reduce their workforce? Uh, that's just, yeah, because of the summer schedule is so massive. They, they fly to destinations they don't fly into in, in, during the winter. They increase the frequency into more key markets during the summer and maybe slow down in the winter. So basically they don't need that many pilots. They're not using that many aircraft. And yeah, during the winter months, they, they use, uh, the time and do all of the seat checks of the aircraft and so on. So yeah, obviously it's just yeah, big seasonal changes. Yeah. And the demand. So you guys basically just have a seasonal job then. Well, it, yeah. Was, For the first years, the at first least. Winter, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and you know, right now with all of this global crisis that we're in, and the aviation market has, it hasn't collapsed. I'm not going to. I try not to be dramatic in, in how I describe what's going on, but it's definitely, it's taken a couple gunshots. So <laughs> we're bleeding out here in the aviation community. Um, and it's very difficult. I know we've been talking about it on the show for quite some time. You know, we, we remained very positive and optimistic the first few months, but now as the reality of what's happening with these second and, and third waves, at least here in the United States, I mean, the rest of the world has seemed to get everything in check and the, the COVID uh, has, the numbers have been decreasing around the world. However, here in the U S and actually now the numbers are coming in that the, the Russia is now, increasing dramatically with their numbers but you know we've seen some dramatic uh reductions and i know you both of you have felt that too and recently sibi you shared with me uh, a fact that is very discouraging and that 
again, you are receiving notice that August 1st, you too will be furloughed, uh, the both of you actually. Can you tell me a little bit about your outlook? I think for me and Runar, we uh, a little bit depended upon uh, uh, the U.S. opening up again. Oh. As, uh, as of today, they're mainly flying to some uh, limited destinations in Europe. And the, the way that network uh, is working for our airline is that they pick up people in uh, Europe and fly them over to Iceland and then over to America or Canada. Uh-huh. It's just uh, via passengers, more or less. Sure. And uh, since there is no via from Iceland, uh, the network kind of closes down. So we, uh, I, for, from, from my point of view, um, try to be optimistic that things will work out. Uh, hopefully it's not going to be a long period. Uh, yeah, that's my take on it, at least. And Runar? Yeah, that's uh, pretty much what Sipi said. Uh, yeah, you try to be optimistic. I mean, sort of what, because, yeah, it, it's all seniority-based, uh, what you get back in. And for me, okay, I may be... Hopeful that next uh, spring we will get in, but uh, you never know. I mean, it, it's all depending on the markets and, and the situation when it opens up and, and also the demand. So, yeah, we'll see how it goes. It's it's uh, changing uh, day by day or week by week. So, yeah, it could, could be less, but let's be optimistic. Probably not until next spring. Yeah. You know, thank you for sharing your perspective because it's one thing that I hadn't really realized is that the United States aviation market is affected by this, but we also affect the markets around the world because like you mentioned, Sibi, with the, you know, the through traffic that are going through your country to come to the U.S., uh, our inability to reopen at least on a scaled, scheduled reopening, uh, is really affecting not just the U.S. market, but markets around the world because the demand is not there. The, the, the inability to, to come here with this international market being locked down uh, is a, a, a job killer, really. There's no other term for it. Now, Roger, what do you think about... Um, the international outlook. I mean, we've been kind of keeping up with the news and unfortunately the cycle has not um, improved with the potential for the international market to open up. But do you see this bouncing back relatively quickly? Uh, I think I'm giving up on on making estimates on what's going to happen or guesses <laughs> on what's going to happen. Unfortunately, things have not turned out the way that we would hoped and, and think the kind of made a turn for the worse, if you will. I do, I agree with Runar and Sibi that hopefully, if we want to be optimistic, hopefully next spring things will maybe be thawing out a little bit. I don't think that, you know, this winter is going to, there's, I, I don't I don't see much hope for the next six months. And hopefully by the time the, the first quarter of next year comes around, and, and especially next summer, 
as, as, as you guys were just talking about how international demand picks up in the summer with the weather and your guys' specific schedules, I think that that's what we can sit and hope for. And for everybody, you know, obviously for you guys, but really for everybody, because it's not, I mean, this is a, an industry wide issue that's, you know, touched Sibby and Runar um, that has, is starting to creep in on, on me personally and how you mentioned at the beginning of, of the podcast, how it's, it's coming for you as well, because while we are kind of in the midst of this crisis now, we're just finding out just how far reaching it is because the travel industry especially has been, I mean, almost completely shut down on an international level. And, and there are going to be issues with that, that are, are going to touch so much of the, of the aviation and the whole travel industry as a whole, whether that's hotels or, or whatever it might be. I, I don't even I don't even have any guesses anymore. I'm with, with you guys. I hope that by next spring, there'll be some hope. And so that by next summer, whether that's via vaccine or, you know, some kind of other miracle or scientific breakthrough treatments, whatever it might be, that by the time the first quarter of 2020 roll or 2021, excuse me, comes around, we'll have some kind of indication that we can try to start moving in a direction back to normality and get people their jobs and livelihoods back. Because obviously this is this is a far-reaching thing, and you know, I give both of you guys my best, you know, now and moving forward. Yeah. Well, you know, we've been tackling the journey so far, and I don't want to end it with <laughs> this discussion. So let's let's do a little rewind and get into a little bit of Q and A Q&A with our guests from Iceland. Uh, Sibi and Runar, who have joined us here on Squawk Ident. And let me ask you each uh, independently here, what have been some of the biggest driving factors for your pursuit in aviation? What has really helped propel you forward? Sibi, let's start with you. Uh, it's a good question. Um, I have to search for an answer, actually. Um, I think it's just more or less the, uh, the interest that I take on the uh, on aviation, just something I really want to do. And no matter how dark the skies seem up ahead, it's something that just, you know, you, you want to do this. You want to keep on going. Don't, don't stop now. You spend all this time and money on something you really like to do. So, uh, yeah, that's basically it. I mean, it's something, it's too much of a hobby. <laughs> yeah. If only we got paid better to do our hobby. <laughs> <laughs> well at least you get paid yeah do your hobby so yeah, yeah. i'd stick that with just true. being able to hold on to a job i, I would like that if yeah, they well, keep paying me i would like that <laughs> it's a good start it's a good start yeah and runa what about yourself what's been the biggest driving factor for you to pursue this career well i don't know it was just the thrill of flying an airplane i guess and uh like i say it's been now what, 13 years since I started uh, as a commercial pilot and 7,000 hours later, I, I still just feel the thrill, just come to the job and fly the airplane and I don't know, uh, just before landing, it's just a little bit of uh, heartbeats coming up and I don't know, it's, it's just, yeah, the passion for it. So exactly the passion. Yeah. And it's a passion that unless you are a pilot or behind the controls of an airplane, uh, maybe, 
maybe a race car driver could feel the same adrenaline thrill of, uh, you know, being at the controls of something that powerful, but yeah. Um, yeah, definitely something that you have to have a good passion for to, to maintain and go through all the, the trauma that comes with it, all the ups and downs and the upsets. So we met at a, a very, I think, kind of a great time in aviation. Uh, it was, even though it was a post 9-11 atmosphere, aviation was booming when we first met. Um, and, you know, it, it's been a quite interesting journey. We've lived through some economic uh, downturns and we're here. We made it, at least thus far. Uh, what have been some of your biggest challenges? Runa, let's start with you. Well, obviously, the biggest challenge was just to get a job. Uh, and yeah, sort of search through opportunities and, and uh, land your first sort of paid job. And I got that with this uh, self-sponsored typewriting course. But uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, that was... Uh, Operating in Africa and Southeast Asia and Europe. Uh, but yeah, the most challenging, I guess, yeah, it's just sort of getting a job, I guess. I mean, you have to study, you have to prepare because there's so many pilots flying as well. So there's a lot of competition. And uh, I think that's sort of maybe the biggest challenge and also being away from the family is quite difficult, but uh, that's the beauty of it. Uh, having a job in Iceland, you sort of always home and, and especially, I mean, I don't know, I sort of sometimes compare it. I mean, in the Europe, you start maybe with some legacy carriers there, you're flying uh, within Europe and then later on you, you go to the long haul fleet, but here we sort of get get the both. We do the day trips back and forth to Europe, and then we go to the US for some overnight flights. So I think I think it's the best job. Yeah, and Sibi. Yeah, I'm with Rona on this one. Uh, the The biggest hurdle is obviously getting the first job. Is uh, you need experience to get the experience, kind of yeah. thing. It's um, so so as soon as you get the first job, the experience kicks in and, you know, you start to build some experience and then it makes it easier to get another job and so on and so forth. And in Iceland, it's quite a small community. So you soon start to uh, meet people that are in aviation and they call you if something's going on, you know, hey, this one is opening up for applications and all that stuff. I think for most of us here, most, not everybody, but the ultimate goal is to work where we work in Iceland yeah. for that legacy Iceland carrier. Yeah. Uh, in so, on some levels, at least. And to do that, you have to do all sorts of things. Work for a small operator, uh, go abroad, work for a European operator or even in the uh, middle east or um you know even with low-cost carriers like ryanair and stuff like that mm -hmm. so it, yeah that the, that's the, the that's the most difficult thing just getting that first job to get the experience and as soon as that comes along you 
gradually built up. Yeah. So you guys both kind of mentioned it. Um, one of the questions I like to ask, especially pilots that have to commute for at least part of their journey in aviation, is, you know, what are some of the best ways that you've discovered how to deal with the conflicting demands of family life and a pilot that has to fly, you know, to a base somewhere other than where they live? Do everything you can to meet your family and spend as much time as, uh, as you can. And hopefully you just don't have to do it that long because it's very tiring. And I, yeah. I, I just remember the last time I was going down to the Middle East after being home in Iceland. And, and after that, I was just quitting and moving home. I was like, wow, this has been an exhausting three years of uh, going back and forth. Uh, even just for a couple of days. I think what makes it easiest is like where we work now is you're going. You know you're going to be away for only well, it's two nights, and you know you're going to be back home. You know at like let's say uh, Saturday morning it's seven o'clock. You're going to be at the doorstep. Mm -hmm. That's that's what make this makes this easy you know, all the overnights and all that stuff, because you know when it begins and you know when it ends and you can plan your family life accordingly. But when you're doing other stuff like Runar and, and myself, and you're flying out to wherever you're supposed to be and you don't know when you're going to be back home, or even if you can bring the family with you because you don't know if you're going to be there the whole time. So it's kind of pointless to bring them out just to be there while you're off somewhere else flying. Yeah. Um, that's uh, I've I've found that the hardest part, kind of um, not knowing when I will be back home or when I will be able to see them again and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Roger, do you have? So I, I got a a much lighter question. You guys have had the opportunity to fly around the world. Favorite cities? Favorite overnights? Around the world, your guys' opinions. Uh, well, apparently nothing just stands out. <laughs> well, I mean, there's so many nice places. I mean, I really enjoyed uh, Japan, Australia. Uh, what else? I mean, South Africa, Johannesburg. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I could go on. Uh, I mean, my, my my most favorite city in the U.S. is Chicago. Really, Chicago? Yeah. You know, Sibby and I almost Sibby and I almost met up one time in Chicago. We missed each other by like a couple hours, a couple years back. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and why Chicago? Yeah. I don't know. It's just has some some kind of an appeal. I, I just quite like it. Does because does the wind remind you of home? The, the windy Maybe city, a bit. the temperature in the winter. <laughs> wind? Maybe. Is there any winter? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's I, 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 I didn't notice any. I didn't notice any cold, any wind. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you were like in t-shirts and flip-flops in the middle of winter. I'm sure, right? You're like, oh, Everyone warm. else was bundled up, and Runar's out there. This is nice and balmy. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah, I was in the Middle East for six years. It was like 40 plus, and I, I could never, yeah. uh, never uh, sort of uh, 
would you say adapt to that? Uh, I can imagine because so, yeah. that's a very different environment than than Iceland for sure. Yeah. And how yeah, about you, Sibby? You have any favorites? Um, in our current network, ah, quite a few of them now in the uh, U.S. Of course, um, Seattle is quite beautiful, but get not so much time. You know, spending spent so much time there at all. How long is that flight? Because we're in there, in, ah, seven almost eight hours or something like that. Oh, that's not too bad. No, no, it's not bad at all. But the layover is quite short. You know, it's uh, early pickup in the mo- well, what one o'clock in the afternoon, something yeah. like that. I believe it was. And um, I always like flying into JFK and coming into Manhattan, but I always appreciate it when i go back home because of the noise yeah. there uh it's it's quite a, it's a it's it's a fun city it's it's um a lot of things to do a lot of things to see and and um but those two i think i'm yeah and then vancouver in uh in canada in, Columbia. yeah i also like sweden and denmark and germany berlin Quite nice. Yeah. But we don't do any layovers there in, in our current. That's so. just a, a day trip in your current position. Yeah. We're just flying back and forth. Yeah. Were you able to fly around Europe at all when you were based in Austria? Uh, we did some flights from Ukraine to, um, uh, well, we went to Moscow and Germany. But when we were based in uh, Milan, we went to uh, France, uh, the UK, and Germany, Switzerland. Yeah, Switzerland's actually quite nice, quite nice as well. Yeah, good beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. true. Great chocolate. True, it's true. <laughs> and chocolate. <laughs> That's Bulgarian. Bulgarian chocolate, is that yeah. right? Bulgarian chocolate. <laughs> yeah. So you guys have both been flying for thousands and thousands of hours. What has been the scariest moment behind the controls? Um, I think we had uh, took an ATC report just before top of descent, coming from Chicago into Iceland, and it was gusting seventy-two knots. Whoa! Um, it was in January, and I think yeah, it was close to the crossing limit of the aircraft, so that was quite scary. That's some crazy stuff right there. <laughs> well, that's Icelandic winter for you. I mean, this is happening a few times over the winter. Wow! And what did you do? Did you have to go around and wait for the winds to get below, or? Uh, I think I mean, it was down to sixty knots. Uh, total gusting but it was like just under 40 knots crosswind so we're able to land oh so your limitations must be a little higher than here in the u.s what what's the limit right now on your current aircraft uh, it's it's uh, 40 knots 40 knot crosswind limitation or total yeah wow that's a lot 40 knot crosswind, crosswind limitation yeah. yeah and sibi how about yourself um i think it was when i was uh, in sweden actually on the jet stream where uh Flying uh, was winter time, obviously, and gets uh, very nasty there sometimes. And uh, 
we were there uh, like six o'clock in the morning and there was some rain going over at the airport somewhere around freezing the temperature and they had to uh well the airport basically closed because it was uh so slippery the runway they had to sand or sweep or whatever they did chemicals on the uh, runway to you know pick up the braking action mm-hmm. And uh, so we just waited while they reopened the runway. And as soon as they did, we went off. And um, pitch black dark. And he just took off, right turn after takeoff, kind of following the weather that just passed. I think we were supposed to be cruising at flight level 170 or something like that, 150, whatever it was. And uh, as we are getting close, we're just above flight level 100, uh, I start noticing that the rate of climb isn't all that much. It starts to reduce, and the speed is dropping. And I was thinking, oh, that's odd. We're not that heavy. Yet. You know, we don't have that many passengers on board and stuff like that. So I kind of turned on the inspection light for the right wing looked out and I didn't see the de-icing boots on the on the wing. So I said, oh okay, we got a lot a lot of ice on the aircraft. Uh, yeah, I'd say. And, <laughs> and turn on the uh flashlight to see the uh the window, the cockpit window. And it was white. And they're heated, but it didn't didn't uh manage to melt that Extreme off. Extreme icing So condition. the captain starts yeah the captain starts to um you know, inflate the boots, and I see the ice breaking off. But three, five seconds later, it's just white. And we just managed to reach our level, but we didn't build up speed. And we were trying, for some ridiculous reason, he thought we should ask for a higher level, which, of course, we couldn't. We couldn't climb any higher because we were so slow and heavy. Mm-hmm. We kind of descended out of that. And it was quite intense because uh, it was a lot of uh, precipitation at that area that we were in. And uh, yeah, it kind of makes you think. And we landed at the destination airport and I was doing the walk around. And uh, there's um, there's uh, some shielding around a temperature probe, uh, aluminum shielding or guard i should say to prevent to, to prevent uh somebody knocking it you know destroying the sure. instrument and that shield was bent buckled just torn off uh probably from ice because i remember clearly doing the walk around before we left it was okay but when we landed it was kind of torn wow. off so um yeah and i had one other incident like that in uh, here in Iceland as well. It's heavy icing. Ah, that's some scary stuff on a on a turboprop. No joke. It really doesn't. No, it isn't really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I can imagine the the winters there and uh, and turboprops that are flying right in the middle of that. Those weather systems can get somewhat scary. Yeah. Yeah, it's because. It, like for this, uh, at that time, it was dark. You couldn't see what was going on outside. So it 
and you know, it was I I I I didn't really pick up on it un, until you know we're struggling to climb those last few feet up to our um, flight level. Um, yeah, so I think that's the one thing that you know makes me more alert that uh, for example wind mm -hmm. i'm more relaxed towards wind than, than icing i think because of this yeah going through an experience like that i mean we've all kind of dealt with that even here in the u.s um i've had a few instances where we were in severe icing and fortunately we were able to descend out of it and it started to melt away we had the super cool water droplets and uh, you know, the heated area of your windscreen and the aircraft was covered in sheets of ice, which you know that if the heated area is covered, you can only imagine what the other surfaces are like. And sure enough, when I did a walk around, there were sheets of ice sliding off the vertical stabilizer of the jet. <laughs> I'm like, okay, yeah. uh, we need to contact ATC and let them know how bad this is because, you know, um, definitely a scary moment. Um, and we've all yeah. read the accident reports of aircraft that have... Uh, you know, went against uh, severe icing and lost, and it's not something that you really ever want to be a part of. So, thank you for sharing that with us, mm -hmm. um, Roger. Do you have any other uh, lighthearted questions before I ask like the final three? Well, I guess more. We'll just go with favorite airplane. For me, well, just all of the airplanes or the jets or all the airplanes. We're not discriminatory here. If, if, you, if you like the Cessna 172, you go right along with that. No, I think the 777 is my favorite. Wow. I guess I can't I, really no fault you for say. that. That's, a, that's, that's a, a pretty beautiful airplane. Almost everybody likes flying, uh, I know. It's just an amazing airplane to operate and, and super easy to fly compared to the size. And how about you, Sid? Do you have a favorite airplane? Uh... I haven't flown all that much, basically, but I absolutely love the 7.6, 767, yeah. Yeah, that's, it's, uh, it's... That's, that's the little sister of the 777, yeah, I quite like that as well. <laughs> yeah. I can almost hear... I'm his little sister. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But the 757 as well, it's, it's, uh, it's a... Very good aircraft, overpowered. Yeah, and it's yeah, fun. I think well. that's the, the best uh, engineered aircraft by Boeing. I mean, it's it's just phenomenal with uh, the the short runways, uh, the overpowering, the the amount they can carry. It's, I mean, they made a big mistake not uh, doing a seven five seven Max. <laughs> Well, the uh, Max is, uh, yeah, they're they're actually recertifying the Max right now. The last I, I read was just the other day that Boeing is now getting that underway. It's a good time to get it back. Hopefully, it'll be back on the line um, and operating before we get back to full speed ahead with the uh, flying. Um, at this point, I just have a few more questions for you, gentlemen. Um, if either one of you can go back in time for just a moment and whisper in your own ear when you were younger and give yourself some advice, what would you tell yourself? <laughs> Find another job. 
You know, I don't think you're uh, the only person, far from the only person that would say that. I know most of my family would tell me that if they could go yeah. back, find another job and choose something else. Yeah, yeah. I would, I I would know, probably, maybe, yeah. Maybe do some, yeah, have some backup career move or some backup education. Yeah, exactly. All you know is flying. You don't know anything else. So we could be a baker. Well, I, I well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would, I would agree with Runa on this one because, uh, as we all know, it's a fragile situation. You know, just having a job, you don't know for how long, or it could be gone by tomorrow. It could be gone, you know, in ten years. And also, just because of the uh, the uh, all the health issues that might affect your license. Uh, it would be wise to have a backup career plan or, or at least uh, educate yourself or study something that you can work with if this one doesn't work for some reason. Yeah. Very sage advice. If only I could make money podcasting, I'd probably uh, not be so worried about the up-and-coming <laughs> furloughs that are heading our way here in the U.S. Um, yeah. But my heart's out to you. I, I know it's tough. Um, you gentlemen have actually gone through a few furloughs before, so I know it's just not your first time dealing with this, but it is definitely the first time dealing with this crisis. And um, you know, my hat's off to you. Uh, what would you? What advice can you give someone that's just wanting to start out and still has a desire to be a pilot and wants to go out and pursue this career? What would you tell them? <laughs> uh, don't stop. I mean, if this is your passion, I mean, I remember when we were doing our theoretical in Oxford, there was you know a lot of furloughs and and you know not so many jobs opening. But yeah, just keep on dreaming, keep on fighting, and you will you will get a job eventually. Yeah, just be absolutely sure that this is something that you want to do, because there's a lot of money involved, a lot of time, and some sacrifice as well. So, but if this is truly something that you want to do, it's uh, a real privilege to be able to work uh, as an aviator, if that's what you really want because another terrible day at the office isn't so terrible at all doing the job you like yeah. yeah very true if you can think of one person in your life that has made the biggest impact to your aviation career who is that person and why mm. that is a difficult question no pressure <laughs> who's this guy at tailwind I can't remember his name <laughs> Roger <laughs> can't really pick one out because everyone you meet you know kind of gives you some pointers to take along some are good yeah, some are not so exactly. good um even if you're flying with a, with a you know grumpy captain at least what you can take out of it it's well this is not what i'm gonna be when i get the captain seat very true yeah exactly so uh, there's, for me at least, there's I, I can't think of any one specific person that has had you know the most impact. 
No, it's just, yeah, it's been very many people you meet throughout the years and most of them just been amazing. And yeah, it mm. taught you a lot. Yeah, every moment has its value. Absolutely. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, gentlemen, um, thinking back to our time in Arizona, that wonderful time where we're building hours, we're young, and we're sitting here in a propeller-driven or piston-powered aircraft and um, enjoying the, the Arizona summers out there. Do you have a fond memory that sticks out that you'd like to share? I don't know. It was all great. I mean, I yeah. quite enjoyed flying down south in the desert and uh, what was it called? Barana, land there, have lunch, fill it up, fly somewhere else, into uh, the mountains, land in Payson. I remember I went to Flagstaff in a 152. Wow. And uh, <laughs> I, I, was, I was getting quite scared. 200 feet per minute climb? The, <laughs> the, the runway was getting, uh, yeah, it was almost over. And oh, man. Thankfully, I made it. But uh, I just have great memories. I mean, yeah. Uh, I've, flying I've to often, Sedona. Yeah. I've often said that if there was one period in my aviation career that would, I could if I could rewind, this is it going to tailwind, building hours. That's awesome. Because um, yeah, it was it was so so much fun. Waking yeah, up in the morning, great. yeah, flying around for a bit, summer in for lunch, keep on flying, grab something to eat for dinner, maybe go back out there, do some night landings and night hours, back home, yeah. open up. Was that before you had dinner. before you had families? Yes. Um, well, actually, we started dating me and my wife. So, okay. Uh, she actually, yeah. The uh, when I came back in 2006, she came for a week, and she really, really enjoyed uh, Arizona. Really? Yeah, she really liked it a lot. This is something different than than Iceland, I suppose. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was in. I think it was in November. It was nice and warm, and yeah, it was just really nice. I remember that time very fondly as well. Yeah. Uh, just the the experiences that I've sh I was sharing with with amazing people from around the world. Um, and when you guys came down, you know, with Root and uh, and Oliver and and all everybody, and you guys were teaching us about the ways of the Viking and. And, uh, you know, inviting us to, to come to Iceland to have some slotar, and you're explaining what exactly is involved in that. And I'm looking at you like, what? <laughs> so explain, explain to the listeners for a moment, what exactly is this Icelandic traditional plate of slotar? Okay. Hey, you must just give me a few seconds. Oh, Hang on. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I guess he has some or something. <laughs> oh man! Uh, and, and Runar, what is what is exactly kind of involved in this, and why is this a traditional plate? Well, this is uh, just way way back before we had refrigerators and everything. I mean, they just used to use everything from from the sheep. So in the autumn, they was just making food for the winter. They used the fat and the intestines and they sort of, yeah, uh, put it all together and they used the actual stomach from the sheep and put it in there and sewed it closed. And 
Yeah. Put it in some uh, sour. Uh, what do you say? Sour liquid uh, vinegar to, or to, yeah. So what? Ah, some something. So so it would uh, not rot, and you just take so it from there and you can eat it yeah. few few months later. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And I used. To, I remember as a kid, we used to do it in the autumn uh, with my parents and you know my grandmother. They came over and you know you buy these packets from the store and you you sort of mix it all yourself you, and you put it into this um, what do you say stomach like uh, bags and stow it and put it in the freezer and yeah that's sort of that's slouter for you it's uh, similar to haggis okay Scotland yeah so this is it there it part has. of it <laughs> Wow, so it's kind of like see a, all the fat. Yeah. It's it's like a just basically it's a, like a cold cut, mm. right? You slice it real thin, and and ladies and gentlemen, this is a great opportunity to let you know that Squawk Ident is now on YouTube. Just search Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident to get clips from the podcast, so you can see what we're talking about here. Well, no. How do you eat it? The thicker it is, the better. Oh. <laughs> Wait. So how do you, how do you eat it? Like like a loaf Wait, of bread? You just yeah. You just cut down a slice and just eat it. And, and that's yeah, how you yeah, make I mean, it through the winter in Iceland. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. I mean, as I remember as a kid, you sort of you had it uh, warm with mashed potatoes and stuff. That does sound good. Yeah. yeah you, it changed. You fry it, you know, on a frying pan, some sugar on oh. top. And, I'm down. Um, I'm coming. Yeah. As soon as they open them up, I'll, I'll be there. I'll, we're going to come over. <laughs> going to have some home-cooked slauter. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Slauter. slauter. Oh, man. So I got to admit, recently with the family, we sat down. And a lot of what we're doing now with all this lockdown and isolation, you know, you can't leave the house, especially here in California. You know, you got to have the mask on, you know, and everything's under what we're calling now, at least I think that's what they're calling it, because I stopped watching the news completely, um, is the second wave. Um, so we're under, again, lockdown. So all the barbers and all these other non-essential businesses have shut down, uh, mandatory shutdown. So we spend a lot of time at home, and in the evening we do some family time and we watch a film. And as we're going through our you know, Amazon Prime uh, video or our Netflix uh, menu to see well, what are we going to watch tonight. I recently came across a film that my family and I watched called Eurovision. And it's a, a very funny comedian uh, who, who stars in it, uh, a couple <laughs> key players, a Hollywood actors. Have you seen this film? Yes, I have. You, you yes, got to explain to me what's the deal with the trolls? Is that a real Viking. Uh, Tradition is that you have to talk to the trolls in the little houses and things like that. Uh, it's it's elves. Oh, it's elves. 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 Well, it was um, in the old days. Uh, people really believed in them, but not so much now. I mean, it's just fairy tales. Yeah, and stuff. yeah. But still, I mean, there's certain places that uh, haven't been oh, yeah. built. That's sort of okay. They try to start digging and the machine doesn't work. Uh, you're trying to blow up a rock to put a road. Uh, nothing works, so they just have to build a road around it. So, yeah. 
actually we here a lot of stories the, like that yeah here at uh i'm at my uh parents summer house and there's a road here that has a rock in the middle of it the road goes around you know mm -hmm. for traffic to go around it and the name of the rock is Alva State or Elf's Rock. And that's uh, one of the similar stories that Rumor is telling. They didn't want to move the rock for some reason. Wow. And this Eurovision film uh, starring Will Ferrell, uh, it's actually based on an actual contest that happens every year. Is this correct? Eurovision? Is this something that is popular in Europe? Yeah. Yeah. We have these and huge Eurovision uh, parties yeah. every year. Yeah. And, uh, and Iceland probably would have won uh, if it wasn't for COVID. Really? Yeah. <laughs> this was our we year, had great, man. We had, we had a really great song. <laughs> you know, now I am totally intrigued. Here I am watching this. Like I'm like, oh, Will Ferrell, I like him. You know? And so, like, okay. And, and I was like, is this like a real thing and so this is great thank you for clearing this up now i'm gonna be looking into this because uh you know i'm all for the whole x factor and <laughs> agt and stuff like that i mean those youtube videos sometimes consume me <laughs> gotta admit <laughs> so yeah that is so cool well gentlemen the most exciting part about it about it is um the the end where they're um, giving all the points to the countries mm -hmm. And everybody sits around the TV, you know, shut up, shut up. And, um, yeah, just to see how everything is going to go, the uh, the finals. Yeah. Well, if you have Netflix, uh, it's called Eurovision. It's a 2020 film starring Will Ferrell, Rachel McAdams, Dan Stevens. And, uh, you know, based on this contest that is very popular in Europe. And I know, you know, we get caught up in these... Uh, cable shows i guess they are or uh, you know netflix series um and we kind of dispel a lot of the other little movies and but man i i liked it it was good and thanks for clearing that up and i'm gonna be looking i think i'm gonna build a little house in my backyard for the elves because i don't want them to get pissed at me and <laughs> oh you bad idea maybe they'll save my job <laughs> you never know Hey, I think you have to sacrifice something. I, okay, well, I, in, in return, I, I'll sacrifice. Yeah. Um, oh, I can't say it. <laughs> in the movie, she she gave them uh, some alcohol. Or well, something. that I can. Yeah. I can. I can sacrifice a little yeah. bit of you know scotch or something. Hey, whatever it takes to to save my job. I mean, at this point, yeah. the bar is anything low goes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, anything goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Well, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure and an honor and just an amazing experience to see your faces again. For those of you that are listening on the podcast, check us out on YouTube and you can kind of put a, a face to the voice. But uh, gentlemen, you look great, man. It's good to see you. You too. You know? You too. To you, Likewise. Yeah. Nice to see you again. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, it's under it's these circumstances where we're talking about you know, the current state of the airlines, but, uh, Hey, let's, let's keep this up. And, uh, hopefully, you know, this will turn around and, you know, you said by spring, you'll be back on a schedule hopefully, but I, I think it'll be a little faster than that. At least I'm remaining positive. Inshallah. <laughs> keep the faith, buddy. I was in, I, I was in the Middle East for six years. 
That's it, man. Well, I want to say thank you to you for joining us today, uh, Sibby and Runar, and as well, Captain Roger, for being on the show and helping me out here. Uh, I also want to say thank you to all the frontline workers out there, the doctors, the nurses, the pharmacists, EMTs, medical techs, firefighters, law enforcement, grocery store employees, truck drivers, Amazon workers, and of course, all the airline employees out there that continue to show up to work every day to provide the essential services that we all count on. You know, here we are uh, enjoying the 49th episode of Squawk Ident, and I encourage you all, if you enjoy what you hear, to make sure you share the program with some friends or family that you might think would enjoy this podcast. And you can also check us out on our website, and that's at www.aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. There you can check out episode archives, the cover art for each episode that is unique. And you can check out Flightline Photos, the Pilot Shop, and now the Guest Book, where we have our featured guests send us pictures from their aviation journeys so that we can all share in this wonderful aviation experience. Also, a big thank you to all of the social media followers out there, those of you on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Thanks for following Squawk Ident and Aviator Tony and the Squawk Ident Podcast. Well, for now, thanks. That concludes our show today. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much. And let me just say thank you to all the listeners out there for taking the time to listen to this Grateful Aviator. Keep the dirty side down, be safe, and take care of each other. Thank you.